One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This happened when I was 15 near Algonquin Park. My father and I were driving up to our cottage in the middle of winter. I always was so amazed at the beauty of Algonquin Park in Muskoka and had grown up enjoying the beauty of it every summer. Our cottage was on a large lake about a 30-minute drive from the nearest town. There were probably thousands of cottages on the lake. During the summer, the lake and the town's population tripled. It was cottage country, so people would spend all summer enjoying the lake and warm nights around campfires with family and friends. I spent every summer there growing up, and it still brings fond memories of sunshine and laughter and the sound of motorboats on the lake. But the winters were different. The people that didn't live there all year would venture back home to the city life, leaving the area mostly deserted, with cottages boarded up for the winter. There were a few people that still frequently would come up every couple of months for a few days or so, but for the most part the lake was silent during the winters and the town was just filled with locals. The beautiful pine trees are always covered with snow, making the forest quiet. Our cottage was on a dead-end road. There were about twenty other cottages on the road, with ours being somewhat in the middle. The cottages were quite spaced out, however, with our closest neighbors being too far away to see through the trees. My dad had needed to head up to the cottage to do some painting that my mom had been bugging him to do. It was at the end of February, and it was a long weekend, so I tagged along so he wouldn't be alone and we could spend some quality time together. It was about a five-hour drive from our home, but turned out to be an eight-hour drive due to the heavy snow. It had gotten dark out quite early, and it was around midnight as we drove through Algonquin Park. It was deadly quiet and pitch black except for the headlights of the car. We finally passed through the park with only about 30 minutes left to get to the cottage. It had stopped snowing, and we were both eager to get there. As we turned onto the familiar road, I remember my dad cursing. It hadn't been plowed yet. This wasn't surprising, however. It probably wouldn't be until later the next day that we would even see a snowplow. As we drove down the road, I noticed there was a fresh set of tire tracks. The Smiths must be up for the weekend, my dad had said. 
All of a sudden, as we drove around the bend following the tire tracks, the headlights of the car shone on a white van that was parked on the side of the road. It was almost hidden by the vast trees that were covered with snow. What the? My dad mumbled. As we drove past the white van, I remember looking back through the back window and very clearly seeing two figures in the front seat illuminated by our retreating taillights. I told my dad this, and he shrugged. Maybe they're lost. I nodded, but couldn't help to think about how it was a dead-end road and why they would feel the need to park there. As we pulled into our driveway and we started bringing our stuff in, I couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. I couldn't stop thinking about that van and why it was there, with two people just sitting in the dark in the middle of the night. It spooked me so much that I begged my dad to let me sleep upstairs with him, instead of sleeping downstairs in the room my sister and I usually shared. It had big windows with no blinds that looked out into the blackness of the forest, and my fifteen-year-old self was already scared of the dark, even without seeing the white van. It wasn't a big deal when my sister was there, but not tonight. As my dad got ready for bed, I sat in the living room reading a book. My dad had turned all the lights off, and I was just using a small lamp next to the couch to try and get through one last chapter before bed. It was so quiet I could almost hear my ears ringing. I also started to get the feeling that I was being watched. The living room had large windows, also with no curtains. That overlooked the lake and it was black except for a light or two from cottages across the lake. I shut off the lamp and got up. Now that the cottage was dark, the moon was shining brightly, illuminating the snow. It was beautiful, and I walked towards the window to get a better look. Movement caught my eye, and I remember my heart dropping as I saw two figures down by the back porch, below the window, barely hidden by the surrounding trees. I dropped to the floor and crawled towards the bedroom where my dad was sleeping my heart in my throat. I wasn't sure if they had seen me or not. I woke my dad up, and by the time he got to the window, the two figures were gone. Where I'd seen the figures, two sets of footprints in the snow lead back around to the front of the cottage and back down the driveway. I begged my dad not to go outside. He double-checked the locks and turned on the porch lights, hopefully to scare anyone off. My dad wasn't as freaked out as I was, but still set the alarm before he headed back to bed. I remember being very freaked out, and I lay there all night next to my dad, terrified I'd look out the window and see someone staring back at me. The next morning, my dad went outside and confirmed that there were two sets of footprints leading from the road to in behind our cottage, and then back around to the front of the cottage and back up to the road. There were tire marks that showed the vehicle had turned around and then gone back up to the main road. My dad guessed that they were probably looking to break in and steal stuff, as it was the middle of winter, and not too many people were up at the lake. But they knew we were there. They would have seen our tire tracks leading to our cottage and my dad's car parked out front. They also may have seen the lamp I had turned on to read, and, or seeing it go off. My dad didn't have an answer to that, and after much back and forth, he called the non-emergency line and reported it. Apparently, there had been some break-ins in the area, and some stuff had been stolen from some cottages that were boarded up for the winter. But again, and I still wonder to this day, why would they be interested in stealing from a house that clearly has people inside it? I'd wanted to be a police officer ever since I was just a little boy. I have dressed up for one every single Halloween that I can remember. There simply wasn't any other job that I ever had an interest in. This is probably due to the fact that my own father was a more well-known officer in the LAPD and my role model for everything in my life. As soon as I completed high school, I immediately tried to get enrolled in the police academy, got accepted, and began my training. Recently, I just celebrated ten years since getting my gun and badge. I've loved every minute of the job. Thanks to my father, I've met all kinds of twisted and dangerous deranged people, though. But I've never felt scared. Every encounter with them just made my desire to protect and serve stronger. That's why the only time I've ever actually felt fear was when I was confronted with something non-human. It's something I still can't explain today. 
It happened sometime in August. Me and my partner were in our car, and we got a call over the radio from an address not far from us. A man calling 911 claimed there was an intruder in his house. We rushed to the address as fast as possible and got to the front door. There was no sign of a forced entry, but the door was unlocked, so we very slowly went inside and began scouting the house. After a couple of minutes, there was only one room left that we did not clear, and the door was locked. And we stated that we were the police, and the owner of the house opened the door, coming out of the bathroom with a knife in his hands. As soon as he saw us, he looked relieved and put down the weapon. He explained that he lives there alone, and he heard a door in the house open and close just before he fled, walking himself in the bathroom. There wasn't really much we could do to help. We looked around for any shoe prints or tracks or fingerprints, but nothing. There was no sign of anybody coming in. We advised him to lock the door and call us again if anything happened or if he saw anything. We were gonna head back. That same night, the dispatcher got a call from the same address, and again, it was the same man claiming somebody is inside the house trying to break in the bathroom door. He truly sounded sincere and looked worried. This time, the front door was locked, and we had to break in. But after scouting the house again, we did not find anybody inside. Also, no signs of a forced entry either. When the man came out of the bathroom, he was pale and looked rather terrified. After we talked to him again, my partner and I went outside and discussed the situation in private. We were absolutely sure nobody else could have been in the house. But we also agreed he doesn't look like he is making things up or crazy or delusional. He was your average 40-year-old man. We concluded that he might be delusional, though, so we decided to go through his medical records to see if we can dig up anything in his past. Perhaps there was a possibility of mental illness. We did not learn anything that would support this idea, but we did find something very strange. This man in the past had reported his wife missing about a week earlier. Police still had not found her. I asked around a little bit. I could not find much. Something was off about all of it. I could not sleep that night, thinking about everything. We had checked multiple records and after time discovered that he didn't try to contact the police or anything about his wife since the day he had reported her missing. He was becoming more and more suspicious. So one evening I decided to stake out at his house to see if I can find out anything. I parked my personal vehicle nearby and waited. Around midnight the police got a call again. It was from the same man claiming somebody was inside. I've been outside his house now for the last couple of hours and was definitely sure nobody got in or out. A little bit after the call, I could see a silhouette walking around the house. I contacted the dispatcher. He told them he was hiding in the bathroom. I was completely puzzled and clueless about what is happening, so I decided to go inside alone instead of waiting for backup. I was certain somebody was going to walk in the house. I picked a lock and slowly made my way inside, sneaking around. I could hear somebody banging on the door of the bathroom. When I got closer, nobody was there, and the only sound was the man crying in the bathroom. I managed to get him to come out and sat down to talk to him. I assured him that I'd believe that something is going on, confronting him about his missing wife. As soon as I mentioned her, his expression and demeanor changed completely. He didn't look sad just some sort of worried, and said that she had been gone now for a while. He didn't get any news or updates from the police. Something was off about the entire situation, but I could not put my finger on it, not yet. We had finished the conversation. I told him I will come back again to ask some more questions and began to leave the house. He remained sitting on the sofa. I was almost out the front door when I heard steps behind me. I thought he was following me, but when I turned around, he wasn't there. Instead, I saw a figure in a white dress approaching him. I pulled out my gun and slowly pointed it at the figure. When the man noticed the silhouette as well, he let out a horrifying scream. At first, after the scream, I could hear him mumbling something about being impossible, and I heard him apologize. He was screaming that he is sorry. I was completely puzzled. Then things became even more strange and unexplainable. The figure in the white dress grabbed the man by his neck and began choking him. I began to yell, commanding it to stop, but it did not listen. 
I took a shot aiming at the shoulder, but the bullet passed right through it, and now I'm scared and confused. So I mindlessly fire three more rounds, and all of them ended up going straight through. I charged with my body to grab the personer thing and went through it as well, hitting into the wall. My mind could not comprehend what had happened. I looked up. The figure was clearly a woman. Her face was expressionless, and she did not speak. She stood there choking the man before my very eyes. I could not do anything. I called for backup on my radio, but pretty soon the man on the sofa had collapsed. The woman in the white dress released his body and began walking away towards the yard. I stood up, checked the man's pulse. He wasn't breathing. He was dead. So I decided to follow the woman. She walked away slowly without making a sound toward the tree in the garden, and then finally vanishing. When I got to the tree, I saw the dirt under it that it was different than the rest of the garden. I began digging with my bare hands. After a little while, the stench. I began digging even faster and discovered a body, rather a head to be more precise. The skin was already decomposing, and half the flesh was devoured. When the paramedics arrived, they examined the man and could see my pile of vomit right next to it. After I'd found it, the reason of death was concluded to be asphyxiation. But there were no visible marks that would indicate somebody had strangled him. The only thing paramedics could conclude is that he had stopped breathing. But I know what happened. I don't know how it's possible, but I am certain that the ghost of his dead wife. I sound so ridiculous even typing this out but the ghost of his dead wife that was buried in the yard came back and had its revenge. For the rest of the police and doctors, this man's death will stay a mystery. I will not say what I saw. I would have my badge revoked and be sent off to the loony bin. Nobody would believe me. But after this, I believe that paranormal and ghosts are very, very real. I had just enlisted in the Forest Service in 2006 and was working in the Algonquin Park for the summertime. I never understood why they paid me as little as they did for all the things I had to deal with. To give you some more context, the Algonquin Park is this massive wildlife preserve full of moose, black bears, elk, etc. And this is why it makes it such an excellent tourist trap. We're always finding weird things, too, like tracks and scat, which is pretty normal, but not when you find human, looking scat in four times the size. That's when things begin to get very unnerving. In fact, I had several people on a trail, a very popular trail, which name and route I won't mention, but they had reported seeing very large piles of human scat along the side. After being disgusted, thinking somebody could not wait to find the bathroom or was just simply going in the great outdoors far too close to a road that people travel, after inspection, this was far larger than any human could produce. Also around the scat pile were these massive footprints that were evidently from a bipedal being. Nearby these prints are large blackberry bushes, meaning that whatever was around here was probably eating berries and doing its business. I never thought Bigfoot was a possibility, but the more and more I see this kind of stuff, the more evidence I'm exposed to, the more I'm becoming a believer, I should say. My most recent one was fairly tame compared to some of the encounters I've had. Me and my now ex-girlfriend, then girlfriend, had decided to take a hiking trip. We rented a small one-bedroom cabin near the Appalachian Trail in North Carolina. Our plan was just to spend the days hiking and enjoying the scenery and come back to the bed. At night, everything was great. For the first three days, we had only rented the cabin for three days. But we wanted to still hike, so we put everything in our car parked at one of the trailheads. I decided that we were going to spend the night out on the trail. It was about noon when we started hiking. Everything was great. We decided at about 7.30 that night we would set up camp on the side of the trail. That's when I began hearing strange noises coming from the woods. I also smelled the familiar smell. I told my girlfriend we need to leave, but she didn't listen. She said it was fine, and it was too dark to go back anyways. 
Somehow she convinced me that everything was going to be okay, even though in the back of my mind I knew what was in those woods, as I have had several encountered before this. We settled in the camp, cooked dinner at food, and were getting ready for bed, when I got this terrible feeling. I'm not one to trust my gut feeling normally, but hearing those noises and smelling that smell, I told my girlfriend we need to go now. So we grabbed a couple things, flashlights, my hunting rifle, extra batteries, first aid kit, that kind of stuff. And we were going to hike to the ranger station about five miles away. As we begin hiking there, I'm hearing something running through the woods, almost keeping pace with us. When I stopped, it stopped. And as soon as I started walking again, it started walking again. I didn't know what to do. At this point, my girlfriend, thinking it was just a bear, told me to get my gun out and shoot at it. I told her, no, it's not a bear. It's something worse. She was confused. I told her we should just keep walking if it's not showing itself to us right. Now there's a reason so we continue walking to the ranger station. We got the clearing where the ranger station was. That's when I actually saw it. This particular dogman was about eight feet tall and either dark gray or black. I told my girlfriend to run and to get to the ranger station and get inside. It wasn't very far, only about a hundred feet. I was right behind her, keeping my eye on the dogman. The entire time we made it inside safely and told the ranger that was on duty about what happened. He said he'd seen this thing before and that we were lucky to survive. It was a bright morning as I walked through the forest, enjoying the fresh air and the beauty of nature. I had just started working as an assistant to park ranger Susan, who was a seasoned veteran with years of experience in the field. She had a keen eye for spotting unusual wildlife and was eager to teach me everything she knew. As we reached the area east of the junction of Highway 211 and Unger Road, Susan suddenly stopped in her tracks and pointed to something up ahead. Squinting my eyes, I saw a large black-brown creature crossing the path from left to right. It was very hairy, and the top of its head appeared to be rounded rather than pointed. I was astonished, as I had never seen anything like it before. The creature stopped, spun around, and looked directly at us. Its gaze was intense, and we couldn't help but feel a shiver down our spines. I could tell that Lori was just as surprised as I was, and we were both eager to investigate further. We cautiously followed the creature about thirty feet into the forest. However, the dense foliage and our growing unease made us increasingly anxious, and we decided to return to the safety of our vehicle. As we made our way back, Susan shared stories of previous hoax cases involving a so-called dogman that would run away, jump into a car, and take off laughing. However, there was no side road at this site, which made our encounter all the more puzzling. Back at the car, Susan and I discussed the strange creature we had seen. Neither of us could identify it, and we were left with more questions than answers. Was it a new, unknown species? or perhaps a misidentified known animal? Or maybe it was something even more mysterious, a creature that defied explanation. Our encounter with the unknown creature sparked a newfound curiosity and sense of wonder within me. Working alongside park ranger Susan, I knew that I would have many more opportunities to explore the mysteries of the forest and the incredible creatures that call it home. This happened to my mom back in the late 70s. First of all, we live in an area in the south that is known for beautiful lakes, rivers, ponds, and woods. Due to the beautiful bodies of water and wooded areas, we have state parks, city parks, etc., and many of them near the water. There is a state park in our area, which was established in the 60s. This park is located on a river, and it is down a long dirt road through the woods. There are no houses nearby. The park is a huge grassy area facing the river with rustic-looking picnic tables, big oak trees, and a rustic building with bathrooms. When my mom was young, the state park service had some type program where teenagers could work for the summer. She was happy to get in the program and make some money. Jobs were not plentiful in our area. 
Her job for the summer was to be the lifeguard at this particular state park. She loved the river, so she was happy. On weekends, the park was full. On weekdays, many times, no one came down there, and when anyone did show up, it might be like one family, possibly two. So this was a weekday. It was morning, and no one was at the park except my mom. The lifeguard chair was not like most. It was handmade rough wood to keep up with the rustic design of the park, and it was not up very high. This is relevant, since no one had shown up at the park. My mom settled in her rustic, uncomfortable lifeguard chair with a good book. Some guy seemed to show up out of nowhere. She looked up from her book, and he was just kind of there. He was wearing dirty jeans and no shirt and looked generally unkempt. But in our area, that look was not necessarily unusual. She asked could she help him, and he asked her if he could skinny dip in the river. She thought he was just joking around, and of course she told him no. She was feeling a little creeped out, because no one was there except her and him. But the rangers usually rode down every couple of hours and circled through the park, so she knew they were subject to show up at any time. Anyway, after telling this guy he did not skinny dip, he stripped down to his boxer shorts and dove into the water. My mom was more than a little freaked out at this point. She was and is a tiny person, at the time five foot two and 115 pounds. Well, while she is looking around nervously hoping a ranger or anyone will come driving up, the guy gets out of the water. Of course, being wet and wearing only boxers, my mom could see everything he had. He walks up to the lifeguard chair and asks my mom if she wants to go out in the woods and have sex with him. She is really scared now, and she said no and asked him to leave. I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he reaches up. Remember, the chair is not very high, and puts his hand on her leg and basically lets her know he would and could force her. She looked around, and as luck would have it, she saw one of the rangers driving up. She dumped out of the lifeguard chair and ran toward the road and toward the ranger. The guy disappeared. The rangers looked for him and never could find him. For the rest of the summer, the rangers patrolled a lot more, and my mother never saw the creepy guy again. She said it was one of the scariest moments she ever had. I now live in southeastern Pennsylvania, which was the hotspot of a UFO flap in 2008, just a few miles away from my current residence. We had one of the greatest UFO encounters. However, I will leave that for another day. In the early 60s, the small suburb of San Juan outside the city of Manila was visited by several UFO sightings, and later what is now referred to as Mothman. I was born and raised in that little suburban town about three miles from where these series of sightings took place. When I was about a year and a half old, my parents moved to a townhouse apartment in the small hamlet of Little Baguio, near San Juan. It's a picturesque Spanish-type suburb with stucco houses with red-tile roofs inhabited by the well-to-do with tended gardens. In between these homes, ranch-style and townhouse-type apartments were randomly scattered. It was in one of these apartments where the haunting of my father started. As my mother and uncle faithfully recounted, my father would retire to his study as a writer of books and poems to sit at his typewriter in the fading twilight after dinner. Outside his den, a creek could be seen running the length of the house through a huge, jalousied window. One evening, according to their recollection, a distinct hum could be heard. As my father paused from his typing, he glanced at the fading light of the twilight to behold a nine-foot being standing with a black cape in the shadow of a large tree perched at the edge of the creek. The creature was jet black with the cape glinting in the starlight-like leather. As my father backed away from his desk to observe the creature, he noticed a face take form with red eyes and a mask of menace. The creature had horns like a goat and long face that exuded deep horror. My uncles, who were close to my father, recalls the night my father had ran from the room in fear. He had believed he was hallucinating the events, only to find the creature hanging one night like a bat from the breadth from the expansive den window. It was looking down at him in menace. 
As they ran to the room, they were overcome by a sense of foreboding and sadness. Upon arrival, the creature had already disappeared, to be replaced by a full moon, and the sound, the water in the creek. One night, several months later, my father refused to sleep, fearful the creature would enter his dreams. My mother set up vigil with a live-in servant, a young woman who believed the creature was a demon. As my father finally slept with my mother, sipping tea in the next room, a yell ensued from the maid who had entered my father's den to check on a scratching noise. As my mother rushed into the room, she finally sighted the creature. It hung, bat wings spread, the breadth of the window, which was about ten, twelve feet in length, glaring pointedly at my mother as she approached. Fearful but determined to confront the creature which haunted her husband, she reached for a cross on the opposite wall and charged the window with it, praying the Our Father as she approached. In the darkness, the creature folded into itself, cloak and all, into the ground under the window and disappeared. The local priest was consulted and blessings were attempted on the apartment and on my father. However, oppressed by the continuous haunting, my father finally committed as a means of escape. That same night, my mother tucked my belongings with me and fled, never returning to the apartment. The creature followed us to my grandmother's house, where a priest held mass and blessed the house and all of us. At some point, the sightings of the creature finally stopped. It was only my mother and the maid who saw it, but other ghosts continued to haunt the town. A scene of much bloodshed in World War II when the Japanese invaded the town. That was my first encounter with the unknown. So one night I'm driving home from a friend's place. It's pretty late, like two or three in the morning. I live in the suburbs and the streets are relatively tight, so I am typically driving pretty slow. Don't speed in your neighborhood. Happy neighbors are good neighbors. I'm nearing the turn to enter my close, and from a distance, I see what looks to be someone outside. Pretty unusual this time of night, as it's all young families and retirees around me. As I get closer, it's definitely a kid, which is even stranger. Like, doesn't this kid have parents? They're standing directly under the streetlight with a raincoat on, not raining, and their hood up over their head so that the shadow cast completely covers their face. I know my neighborhood pretty well, and while I don't know most by name, you know who has kids and who doesn't. This corner house 100% doesn't have any kids. That kid's gaze was locked onto my truck, unwavering, turning their head and staring straight at me as I slowly pass, turning right towards my house, this kid only a few feet away. This kid did a full 180 with her body and watched me drive down my street. While I only live six or so houses into the close, it's just enough I lost sight of the kid. It was super unsettling. I couldn't even quite explain to you the feeling I got from it. I back into my driveway, put my truck in park, think about what I saw and say if it. I've got to check this out. Back in the drive and back down the street, maybe 20 seconds tops since I've passed and kids gone. Vanished? The roads are straight enough in any given direction that in that short amount of time, that kid would have had to straight-up sprint to stand a chance of being out of sight. If demon child is gone. I went home, parked quick, and didn't take my time getting inside and locking the door. To this day, never saw the kid again or any... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Anything that's given me a bad vibe like that. Damned if I know what was going on. If it was a prank, hats off. You did it, kid. I was alive and caretaker for a 94-year-old woman with Alzheimer's for about a year and a half. She had moved into her daughter's home, deep in the woods of middle of nowhere, Washington. Marie was prone to say weird things, like that her sister, deceased, mother, deceased, and husband, deceased, were in the house or outside regularly. I'd been working with dementia patients for a few years by this point, so it never bothered me. Marie was terrified of the woods. She would tell me about how there's dangerous animals out there, and I could get lost easily, so I must always stay inside. She was also worried about her mother and husband having to travel through them. Again, this wasn't worrisome behavior given her health condition. I had been working with her for about six or seven months when I would start waking up to her walking down the halls in the middle of the night. Sundowning is fairly normal for people with Alzheimer's, so again, I wasn't troubled by this, but she started going to a specific window and giggling, like she was interacting with someone outside the window. When asked what she was doing, she'd say, my mother is out there. Kind of weird, but there's a different perception in her world now. One night in dead of winter, her daughter and I are awoken to the blaring of the house's alarm system. The daughter and I checked the doors and windows, none of which seemed to be disturbed or unlocked. The only thing missing is Marie. She is nowhere in the house. Panicked, I rush outside to find her while the daughter continues to search the house. No tracks anywhere. No disturbed snow. Nothing. After 10-15 minutes of yelling, searching the woods, I start making my way back to house where her daughter was already in the process of calling 911. As I reproach the house, I see Marie. Standing outside the window, she normally stood at giggling. There's not a single footstep in the snow around her. Nor is she cold to the touch. She's just standing there laughing at nothing. Didn't even know she was outside. Her late-night window visits became more frequent after this, but less happy. She'd get combative with the window and scream at whoever she believed to be there. Then it just stopped one day. One of the last conversations I had with Marie before she passed, she told me to not let them take me into those woods. I hope they didn't. Unfortunately, it's hard to explain. I was hiking down a trail with my dog in remote northern Wisconsin when I just got a weird feeling. At the exact same time, the heckles on my dog went straight up, and he began acting really anxious. About the same time, I came into a clearing in the woods and got hit with what I can only describe as a sound wave. It was like someone was blasting a subwoofer right next to me, but there was nothing around. The nearest road was maybe a mile away. Something told me to get the fout of there. So I quickly turned around and hiked as quickly as possible the rest of the way back. I didn't hear that bass sound after I left the clearing, but I still felt like something was following me. We were just doing our usual training exercise. I'm Sergeant Thompson, part of a National Guard unit running routine maneuvers in a heavily forested area near a small, secluded town. We were only supposed to be there for a few days, but those few days turned into something I'll never forget. Our first clue something was off was when we found the bodies. They were mauled, torn apart in ways that no normal animal could manage. The townsfolk were terrified, and we quickly found ourselves taking on a role we'd never anticipated. Protectors against something far from routine. The local sheriff told us about the legends, about creatures that roamed the woods when the moon was full. Werewolves, he said, half joking, half believing. We laughed it off at first, but then as night fell and the full moon rose, we heard the howls. They were unlike anything I'd ever heard, a chilling mix of man and beast echoing through the quiet forest. 
Our laughter quickly faded. Suddenly, the legends didn't seem so funny. We rallied our unit, prepping our military equipment. We were soldiers trained to handle any threat, even if the threat was straight out of a horror movie. The townsfolk were counting on us, and we weren't about to let them down. The werewolves came as the night deepened. They were swift and brutal, their movements almost a blur under the silver moonlight. Their howls filled the air. Their eyes glowed in the darkness. They were terrifying, but we stood our ground. We fought with everything we had. Our bullets seemed to only slow them down, but we kept firing, kept fighting. We used our military training to strategize, to coordinate our attacks. We set traps, created choke points, and used the town's layout to our advantage. The battle was fierce, and we lost some good men and women that night. But we also saved lives. We protected the town's residents, helped them survive the night. And as dawn approached, the howls faded, and the werewolves retreated. We were left standing amidst the quiet town, the full moon setting, and the first rays of sunlight peeking over the horizon. We were bruised and battered, but we were victorious. We'd protected the town, neutralized the threat. The following days were a blur of reports and debriefings. Our superiors were skeptical, but the evidence was undeniable. We were hailed as heroes by the townsfolk, their gratitude evident in their tear-streaked faces. That training mission turned into something none of us could have ever predicted. It changed us, made us realize just how unpredictable our world could be. We faced down werewolves under a full moon, and we lived to tell the tale. And now, every time the moon is full, I can't help but listen for the howls. There's a certain charm to living in the desert boonies, a charm that's often lost on those who've never experienced the vast emptiness, the silence, and the solitude it offers. My girlfriend lived out there in a small house surrounded by an endless expanse of sand and shrubs. I'd often spend nights with her enjoying the peace that the desert night brought, but there was a catch to living in such seclusion. Her house was near a state penitentiary, a place notorious for its frequent escapees. This was back in the day, long before cell phones and digital alerts became commonplace. So, the only way the authorities would inform us about a prison break was through police helicopters flying overhead, blaring messages from megaphones. I remember one night distinctly. The desert was quiet, the sky was clear, and we had just drifted off to sleep when we were abruptly awakened by a deafening roar. A police helicopter was flying over our house, its searchlight piercing through the darkness, and a voice was screaming at us from the sky. Attention! Attention! An inmate has escaped from the state penitentiary. Please stay indoors and make sure all your doors and windows are locked. In the silence of the desert night, the sound was jarring, even terrifying. We bolted out of bed, hearts pounding in our chests, and ran around the house, checking all the locks and windows, ensuring they were secure. The helicopter continued its rounds. The voice echoed in the desert, repeating its warning. We huddled together in the living room, waiting for the commotion to die down, waiting for the silence to return. Those were good times in their own strange way. They were times that tested our courage, times that broke the monotony of our desert life, times that brought us closer together. We were never in any real danger, but the adrenaline, the fear, the excitement, they all made our life out there in the desert boonies a little more thrilling, a little more adventurous. And looking back, I wouldn't have had it any other way. In 1999, I was seven years old, playing in the woods with my friend Charlotte. We were standing at each end of a big log in the woods when I noticed movement in my peripherals. I tried focusing my periphery to catch a detailed look. I see similar movement often when we're in the woods and always disappears, more like scatters before I turn to look. My heart skipped a beat when I could make out a group of little people looking up at me as well. 
I was frozen in the pose I was playing in. After a few seconds, I realized Charlotte had stopped narrating out play and was frozen in place as well, staring at me, but focusing on them. I'm pretty sure they were dressed because it didn't look like they were all naked. I could tell they knew we were aware of them, and they dispersed as Charlotte moved her eyes. We didn't talk about it until we were in our house. We weren't afraid, just confused on our walk home. We wrote out what we saw before talking about it to see if we saw the same thing. Unfortunately, both our descriptions were so vague but clothed, less than a foot for sure. One thing we were positive of was to mind our business and to not go searching, which is what our instinct would usually been. Duh. We thought we found a colony of little people in the woods, but the fact that our reaction was to quietly leave and not even talk about it until behind closed doors, and still not even talk out loud, but write it. I don't remember being too frightened. In fact, we kind of just accepted it and moved on with a new taste of what this world universe is capable of. I watched the Indian in the cupboard later in life, which reminded me of these little people, but I no longer saw them by then. Charlotte and I would talk about seeing things out of the corner of our eyes, but could never figure out what it was. Although Charlotte was different, her and her dad were huge hippies. Tire swing in the kitchen, no TV, and her imagination was so wildly magnificent that it made my mind radiate. I always thought that maybe her narration of our play was so powerful and energetic that we could manifest and see the same thing. Little people were never playing any parts in either of our imaginations. In fact, when we both infirmed what each other saw, we were kind of in awe that we've never even dreamt of tiny people on this universe. My ex-boyfriend was Navajo, and he used to share countless stories from his culture and his childhood with me. One in particular still sends shivers down my spine. When he was a kid, he and his sister loved to play in the dense woodland that bordered their house. They were inseparable, always lost in some grand adventure, a world of their own making. But one day something strange happened that abruptly ended their woodland escapades. They were deep in their usual game when an eerie feeling washed over them. The woods, usually teeming with sounds of life, fell eerily silent. It was as if the forest itself was holding its breath. Something felt off, but they couldn't quite put their fingers on it. Rattled, they decided to cut their playtime short and rushed home. Their concern was evident, and it didn't go unnoticed by their parents, who decided to seek the counsel of a respected medicine man in their community. The medicine man listened to their story, his face growing more serious as they explained what had happened. When they finished, he nodded sagely and told them, Little people have been watching you as you played. The woods are their home and you have intruded on their space. It's best not to play over there anymore. The term he used to describe these beings was something like the genie men, a phrase that always seemed to catch in my ex's throat as he said it, his eyes filled with the memory of that day. I've tried to find more information about these day genie men, but my efforts have proved fruitless. Still, the story has stayed with me, a reminder of the unseen world that could very well exist just beyond our perception, right there in the untouched corners of the forest. Six years ago, when I was only twelve, an experience shook me to my core. I'd just returned home from school and was enjoying my lunch in front of the TV. Both my parents were out, and my grandmother was fast asleep in her room. As I sat there engrossed in my favorite cartoon, something in the room adjacent to the TV caught my attention from the corner of my eye. At first, I tried to dismiss it as my imagination, keeping my focus glued to the screen. But soon, I felt a movement in that room. When I turned my head, my heart nearly leapt out of my chest. I saw the teeth of a person wide open in a terrifying grin. It was a woman, or at least that's what it looked like a black figure smiling at me. My heart pounded in my chest, 
and for a moment I was paralyzed by fear. I stared at her for what felt like an eternity, but was probably only five seconds. Then she started moving towards me. That was my breaking point. Fight or flight kicked in, and I bolted towards the room, slammed the door shut, and dashed out into the backyard. Outside, my breath came in ragged gasps. I kept glancing at the house, peering through every door and window, scared that the figure might follow me. It took me a good ten minutes to calm down. When I finally gathered the courage to go back inside, I found the door to the room still closed. I checked on my grandmother. She was still asleep, oblivious to the ordeal I'd just experienced. I wanted to wake her up, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. I returned to my spot in front of the TV, my gaze locked onto the screen, but my mind elsewhere, grappling with the terror I'd just experienced. When my parents arrived home later, I finally felt a bit safer. I called up my friend and spilled out the entire incident to him. Surprisingly, as time passed, the incident faded from my memory. I never told my parents about it until a month ago when a scene from a horror movie brought the memory rushing back. They brushed it off as a dream since I'd kept it a secret for six years, but my friend remembered my frantic call that day. To this day, I don't know what I saw. Was it a spirit? A hallucination? I've tried to rationalize it, but the memory remains vivid and real. After that day, I never encountered anything similar again, except for a strange occurrence last week. But that's a story for another time. I live in Connecticut and had a very negative paranormal experience out in the woods in Granby. Time loss, ending up in a place we could not have physically ended up in given the time. Like we went for a hike and basically ended up in a place ten miles away and over a mountain, cliffs, hills. Two of us were tripping with one sober trip-sitter tagging along with us, so we chalked it up to that because we did get lost. The trip-sitter was kind of a shitty person in the end, so we assumed she deliberately let us get lost for entertainment on her behalf. I don't know law. But when we ended up getting rescued by a friend's boyfriend and brought back to our car, even he dead sober could not believe we ended up where we did. Three towns over literally in only two hours that also involved a lot of walking back and forth on the same path trail. We weren't even walking fast, just moseying around and enjoying nature until we realized we suddenly didn't recognize where we were anymore, despite never leaving that original trail. In the way back down, it seemed different and foreign, even according to our trip-sitter. I refused to go back to that hiking spot. The whole situation gave my other tripping friend a panic attack. It felt a bit like some of the stuff that I've heard about happening in the 411 missing docu. I think it's called that, and I don't actually care for the guy who made it since I heard he's a bit dishonest about some things. There's a lot of granite in quartz in Connecticut and an apparently weird paranormal stuff happens around those types of rock formations crystals. I know one time I was hiking and legit started to get trippy visuals, despite being sober myself during that hike, and it seemed to occur only in a very rocky part of the trail. I booked it because it made me feel out of control. Not a good feeling when alone with your dog out in the woods, lol. I don't spend time out in the woods in Connecticut alone anymore. Not even with my dog. I need a posse or I'm not going out there, LOL. We didn't know what was going on until just a few years ago. At first, we found the house that they were living in. My husband and I didn't know what it was, and he kind of joked with me about it. At that time, we didn't realize it was a Bigfoot. Since then, our property had a fire, it burned down, so we moved a mile and a half from where we knew they were into another house. Little did we know that we were just coming into a family of them. So said Brenda in her radio interview with David Schrader, host of the late-night radio show Coast to Coast. According to her, she and her husband hear the Bigfoot family scrape their walls, make weird noises, and create other kinds of ape-like nuisance. They, however, are, are not feared by them a bit. 
Instead, they even leave buckets of food for their Sasquatch friends. They throw rocks on the house. I hear them talking. People thought I was crazy, but I know what I heard. I've heard them yell, walking out close to the house, and my husband, too. They're all around us, and my son put cameras out below his house, and he got some on camera, but they've never tried to hurt us. I hear them talking. You can't make out what they are saying, but know it's their voices. She also says that at first there was only Mama Bigfoot and Papa Bigfoot, but recently they had a baby. Now they are a blooming, happy family of three Sasquatches living alongside their very own human house in the middle of town. Brenda has even claimed that another fellow neighbor had seen the Bigfoot trio, but was too scared to talk about it. It was the summer of June 2013, and the high temperatures were not helping farmers. Even though it wasn't a dry year in the state, a few weeks had been a little hotter than usual. I lived in Altamont, Missouri. When some of us would go water the plants at night, we noticed the strange sounds. I got a phone call from my son at two in the morning. He was very agitated. I figured something was very wrong. For two weeks, the family had been living in a state of stress and insomnia. Every other night, we'd drive to their land to water their cornfield. There were noises that we had never heard before. See, we didn't know what it was. We know there are animals out here. We know that. But this sound gave me goosebumps. It goes like a tapping sound, as if somebody was chattering their teeth, only much more faster and louder, then silence, then shrieking. These aren't coyotes or wolves or anything like that. I saw something, and that is not from this land, that I'm sure. It was there standing before me as I pointed the flashlight at it. It was darn big, then a sudden movement, fast as heck, and it was gone. I can only describe it as an eight-foot-tall winged creature with a long muzzle that resembled the face of an alligator. The animal was featherless, and its skin was gray, with a wingspan of over 80 feet that looked like the wings of a bat. The almond-shaped eyes appeared red under the stream of light pointing at them, a known characteristic of certain rodents, opossums, and birds. The only creature that I can reference it to is a paradactyl, even though I know that sounds crazy. Have you heard of other similar sightings in this area? I truly believe I was abducted by aliens a couple of months ago. My dreams of my house were too vivid to be dreams. Something happened. I remember standing at the patio door looking up. The ship was huge with two, three, or four big lights. I remember a red and white light. I knew I was looking at the back. But instead of seeing my backyard, there was a field with two cars. I think the one closest to me was a red convertible with the top down. There was a woman leaning against the car. I think she had dark curly hair, darker than mine, and softer curls. I think one or two men were sitting in the car drinking. These details are too vivid and too memorable to be a dream. The ship was a very strong material, gunmetal gray in color. From what I saw, the house blocked the rest of the ship. I was looking up. The clincher is that I was jolted awake in bed. I turned over in the clock read 5.26 a.m. I felt like I had just gotten in bed and I was exhausted. I didn't want to have to get up and go to work. I turned onto my left side and my first thought was that I'd need to get checked out for any implants. I tried to find something on the internet to tell my story but didn't find anything in that short time. I told my best friends last night and she doesn't think I'm crazy. When I wrote it, I wrote things going on in my life before and after. There was no break. Also, I remember when I wrote this how calm I became. To clarify how I saw the ship, I have two sliding glass doors going outside. I have to open both of them. I remember seeing everything in the den as it is right now, not like a dream where everything is distorted or made up. And I was standing in the house at the first door, with both open. In my probably nightgown that night, I was looking up, and if I had stepped out and jumped up, I could have touched the ship. It was that close. I have metal awnings, but that night, it was like they were gone. 
Because the ship was so close and the view I had, that's why I could only see the back. It was like I was being dropped off. I didn't feel strange or funny or have any weird things. Supernatural things do happen to me at night, but as long as I pray, it helps. I now wear a St. Michael the Archangel medal that was blessed by the Pope and pray to him each night also, and that has helped tremendously. To clarify being exhausted, have you ever gone out one night and partied and got drunk, not too drunk, but enough to know you're drunk, and you came in at 4 or 5 or 6 a.m., then you throw yourself in bed and you're asleep before you've stopped moving. That's what I felt like. I had gone to bed the night before, as usual, but when I was jolted awake, I looked at the clocks, he above, and literally felt like I had been dropped into my bed and that I had not gotten any sleep. My best friend is the only one I told about this because I'm too scared to talk to anyone else. Maybe I watch too many TV shows and movies, but I have not spoken to anyone about this. I've thought long and hard, and I wanted to report this. But I don't want anything bad to happen to me. It was a hot summer day, and I decided to go for a hike on a trail I had heard about from some friends. They had mentioned that it was common for people to skinny dip at the end of the hike, and the idea of taking a refreshing dip in the cool stream sounded like the perfect way to unwind after a long hike. As I walked along the trail, I saw a few people sunbathing in the distance. Wanting some privacy, I decided to head upstream to find a more secluded spot. As I continued along the path, I noticed a lone man on the trail. I politely stepped off to let him pass, assuming he would continue on his way. I finally found a quiet alcove where I felt comfortable enough to strip down and enjoy the cool water. I quickly undressed and submerged myself, feeling the refreshing sensation of the water against my skin. Just as I started to relax, I felt a sudden sense of unease. To my horror, the man from the trail reappeared, standing only a foot behind me, completely naked. He attempted to strike up a conversation, but my instincts were screaming at me that I was in danger. I muttered a response and quickly scrambled out of the water to get dressed. Adrenaline pumping through my veins, I began the three-mile hike back to my car at a rapid pace. With no cell service in the area, I knew I had to rely on my own instincts to keep myself safe. Every rustle in the bushes, every snapping twig sent shivers down my spine as I hurried along the trail, praying that I would make it back to my car without incident. When I finally reached my car, I breathed a sigh of relief, grateful to have escaped the situation unharmed. From that day on, I vowed never to hike alone again, always opting for the company of friends on my outdoor adventures. The memory of that terrifying encounter serves as a constant reminder to trust my instincts and always prioritize my safety. It was a quiet night as I drove down the narrow country road, taking my friend back to his village after a long day of hanging out. The clock in the car read just after midnight, and the only source of light came from the dim glow of the headlights cutting through the darkness. As we approached a small bridge, I noticed a peculiar sight, a small cloud-like formation slowly drifting across the road. Just a bit of fog, I thought to myself, not an unusual occurrence on these country roads. My friend, lost in thought, was staring out the window, oblivious to the foggy apparition up ahead. As we got closer, I expected our car to pass through the fog, but what happened next left me baffled and frightened. Instead of us driving through the fog, the fog seemed to pass through the car itself. It seemed to defy the laws of nature as the misty cloud moved right between the two of us and out through the back of the car. Startled, I jumped in my seat, gripping the steering wheel tightly. My friend, who hadn't been paying attention to the road, was equally shocked by the phenomenon. He confirmed that he had also witnessed the fog passing through the car, leaving us both bewildered and struggling to make sense of what had just happened. We spent the rest of the drive discussing our eerie encounter, trying to come up with a rational explanation for the strange fog, but to this day the experience remains unexplained, 
a chilling memory that lingers in our minds whenever we find ourselves driving down those lonely country roads late at night. I'd always loved the peace and tranquility of living on my five-acre property surrounded by cow fields on all sides. My dogs were my only companions, and we had developed our own little routines, including singing silly songs together. One of the songs I often sang was the nursery rhyme, Daisy. Daisy. It had become something of a tradition for me to sing this song to my pups as they wandered around our home, mostly indoors since they were indoor dogs. On a crisp fall evening, I found myself alone in the house with the windows wide open, enjoying the cool breeze that swept through. As I hummed the familiar tune of Daisy, Daisy to myself, I suddenly heard something that made my blood run cold. A faint low whistle echoed through the air, mimicking the tune of Daisy, Daisy with eerie precision. The whistling was slow and deliberate, as if someone or something was taunting me. At the end of the verse, the whistling ceased, leaving an unsettling silence in its wake. Fear gripped my heart, and I couldn't bring myself to look outside to investigate the source of the haunting sound. I closed the windows my heart pounding in my chest and tried to shake off the unsettling feeling that had settled over me. To this day, I still don't know what caused that chilling whistle. The memory of that eerie night remains with me, a constant reminder that sometimes the unknown can be far more terrifying than anything we can imagine. <laughs> 